I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leisha Gerbinski in for Laura Lynch in Saskatoon. Today, I want to show you where I live. There are no large mountains. There are no cascading waterfalls. But the prairies are pretty incredible. Our sunrises and sunsets get a lot of attention. How about, though, a more subtle example? Our vast fields of native grasses and wildflowers, for instance. Something remarkable is happening beneath the surface that locks in carbon to prevent global warming. We'll meet people who are tenaciously working to preserve our grasslands. Later on, deep in the Montney Basin of northeastern British Columbia is Canada's largest carbon bomb, an oil and gas field so big that it has the potential to blow Canada's emissions targets. You are basically betting on humanity continuing to burn down the house at the same rate in order for you to make money. And that is a very risky bet. But one First Nations community sits atop that carbon bomb, and after a landmark court case, they now also sit in the driver's seat. They tell us what's at stake for their community as they decide whether development continues. But first, it's easy to bust out the bikes when it's warm, a little harder in March, where I live, Despite the gripping windchill, we're going to try and get you on board with biking in the winter because it will help you reduce your carbon footprint. We start the show by meeting some inspiring people like this seven-year-old in Saskatoon. Just really good exercise and I like it. And if you think about it, it's actually pretty easy. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of climate solutions. Okay, I know a lot of you are cyclists. It cuts down on emissions and helps you get some exercise while you're at it. But how many of you are winter cyclists? And how many of you are winter cyclists in an icy, snowy, freezing part of the world? I am. But in Saskatoon, it is not always easy. Let me show you what I mean. Okay, so I'm standing at the start of one of our best bike lanes in the city. This takes you from one of our central neighborhoods right into the center of the city, right into downtown. And it's a separated lane, and for the most part, it's cleared from snow. It's looking pretty smooth. Should be an easy commute into downtown. But here's the thing. We still have tons of ice, you know, quite a bit of snow still. And the painted lines that show you that this is a bike lane... It's covered in ice, so you can't even tell that it's a bicycle. I'm now biking in this lane, and on my left is the library. So it's actually, you know, a really conveniently located bike lane. But I'm approaching... Oh, this is bumpy. Hold on. Cannot multitask. So icy, so bumpy has not been clear. 
<laughs> so that is just a taste of my experience with winter biking in Saskatoon. I'm going to bring in producer Rohit Joseph in Victoria, who's helping out on the show this week. Hi, Rohit. Hi, Alicia. I'm glad you survived that uh, biking <laughs> experience. Uh, I'm not going to lie. That, that does sound rough. We don't all live in places like Victoria, right, (laughs) with mild weather. Uh, There is something, though, I will tell you, Rohit. It's incredibly exhilarating being out on a cold, sunny day, even if it is extremely bumpy, snowy, icy, with no real safe route that's free from cars. You know what? I I can understand that. But it got me curious. Is there any city that is actually good at winter biking? Have they nailed winter biking? So I did a little bit of digging. And I found a place. Well, where is it? Where are we headed? We're going to a land that's a lot like the colder parts of Canada. I am Becca Dachkala and I work as an urban well-being engineer at a small consultancy company called Navico in the city of Oulu, Finland, which is located at the 65th latitude. So we are almost at the Arctic Circle. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. We are just past the blue moment and the sky is so beautiful with this all dark shades of blue. It's about minus 17, minus 20. I'm not sure. I didn't check exactly. And it's beautiful, quiet and well illuminated. (laughs) Minus 20. That's the exact same temperature as Saskatoon right now. (laughs) Well, you know what, Pekka, who you just heard there, He's somewhat of an evangelist of winter cycling. He works as a consultant with the city of Oulu on a lot of their transportation projects. Oulu is hailed as the winter biking capital of the world. If you just do a quick Google search, you'll see articles from the BBC, The Guardian, and Canadian Cycling Magazine praising the Finnish city's winter bike infrastructure. Well, and I got a good sense of how committed Pekka is to biking because I could swear I heard huffing and puffing And some cycling noises in that clip. Was he actually biking while he was speaking with you? Yes. Yes, he was, Lisha. (laughs) Not only that, he was recording video with his phone while steering the bike with his other hand. And that just goes to show you how good the winter biking infrastructure is in Olu. The Finnish city has over 950 kilometers of bike paths that are completely separated from car traffic. That's even more than Montreal. And Olu has the same suburban sprawl that's typical in many Canadian communities. And it's also got a population that's comparable to most mid-sized Canadian cities with about 210,000 residents. Yeah, so Saskatoon's just a little bit bigger than that, but, you know, not far off. Uh, and I can't believe that they've got more bike paths than Montreal. That's, that's incredible. How do they manage to, to do that, to maintain that big of a bike network, despite the fact that it's cold And it is a city that has quite a bit of sprawl. A key thing is the maintenance of this bike network. The city makes sure to have bike paths plowed by 6 a.m. And if snowfall continues, they will plow multiple times a day as needed. For ice, they use fine sand or certain types of gravel that have minimal environmental impact and also do not damage tires. And people seem to be using them. The cold's not stopping anyone from being out on their bikes. How many people in Olu are actually on their bikes during the winter there? Pekka told me 77% of Olu's population cycles at least occasionally, and 42% of the population does so during the winter. With that many people riding a bike, even during the winter, 
there's a lot more consensus for funding well-maintained bike paths. So did Pekka tell you why winter biking is such a big thing in this city? Was it always like this? Well, Pekka says even when cars became widely adopted in the last century, Olu residents committed to their love of bikes. We have always had the culture and we just didn't let it die completely. It did go down seriously here as well. We are a car-infested suburban hellscape with decent bicycle infrastructure. <laughs> it's quite the description of a place. And I, I get it. it. He's convinced me the Finns are way more committed to biking than us, it seems. But how much of a difference does winter biking make when it comes to the climate? Well, think about it this way. In Olu, at least 50,000 trips are made by bike every day. If there wasn't this great biking infrastructure, Pekka believes that most residents would drive their own cars instead due to the long distances and the limited use of public transit. So imagine if we did this on a bigger scale in Canada, helping reduce tens, if not hundreds of thousands of car trips. That would certainly add up to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, it would start to add up. And it does seem that plowed bike lanes are what people need, right? It's not the weather that stops people. It's the cars. It's the ice. It's the snow drifts that prevent people from hopping on two wheels. And actually, Alicia, I did share your biking experience in Saskatoon with Pekka. And <laughs> here's his response to that. Listening to that, it sounds like a quest of survival, not like an easy ride from A to B, which it should be. And it certainly doesn't sound like a place where you would take your kids for a ride. <laughs> Pekka makes a good point there. You know, I'm fully on board with winter cycling. Uh, I love it, but I don't feel safe hauling my kids behind me. I've done it, but it's not something that I do on a regular basis, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And Pekka says there are some simple changes that could help. What is so great and at the same time sad is that the suburban sprawl in your cities in Europe and Canada and also here is so huge that you've got so much space that you could distribute more wisely and build, for example, bicycle infrastructure there. And the good news is there does seem to be an appetite for winter cycling here in Canada. The city of Toronto commissioned an online survey of about 1,500 residents back in 2019 And it found that most cyclists would be down to bike in the winter if the bike paths were properly plowed and if there was safer infrastructure. And even in wintry Edmonton, the advocacy group Bike Edmonton partnered with the city to offer free studded tires as part of its winter cycling challenge. It turns out they had so much interest that the program has completely filled up. So we actually just wrapped up Winter Bike to Work Week here in Saskatoon, and the number of cyclists who are stopping by the commuter station seems to go up every single year. And then also the city just announced a big grant from the federal government to help plan out some new bike lanes. So there is interest, there are things happening, but the process is maybe a little bit slow for some people. Even without the infrastructure, though, we're out there, I'm out there, and I will tell you, Rohit, you don't need a lot of fancy equipment to be a winter cyclist. Hmm. I uh, I wear a pair of ski goggles when I bike that were actually my brother's from back in 1997. 
So the gear does not need to be fancy and it doesn't even need to be new. And I have to tell you, Rohit, there are some pretty inspiring people here in Saskatoon and they aren't wearing anything fancy either. Let me introduce you to seven-year-old Evelyn Sukin. This is what she wears when she bikes with her family. We have to stay warm, so sometimes I wear a big sweater and then my snow pants and my jacket and a nice long scarf with a cat on it. It's my favorite. And I also wear a toque that my nanny made me. And I wear my mitts that help keep my hands warm because I can't bike without mitts. Oh, that's that's so <laughs> cute. Yeah, and, right? But also, like, hardcore. Evelyn's just going out there yeah. and doing it. Yeah, she's out there every day. So I know Pekka said, oh, Saskatoon doesn't sound so great for kids biking, you know. And he's, you know, he makes a point, and I would agree. But Evelyn is proving me wrong. She says it's totally possible. Maybe you could get a fat bike, and you could practice more, you know, going on a bike and being more stable on a bike. And if you have kids, well, then you can go to this bike doctor and they have a trainer. Evelyn is so inspiring. Leisha, thank you for having me on to talk about winter biking. I've loved this. Thank you so much, Rohit. Are there any other winter cyclists out there? We'd love to hear from you. How do you make it work in your community? What type of biking infrastructure would you like to see that would make it easier? You can send us an email, earth at cbc.ca. And here's something else we want to hear from you about. We're looking for climate heroes. Is there someone in your life who's gone that extra mile to protect the planet? then nominate your community climate champion. People like Evelyn out there biking in their cat scarves and their snow pants. We want to know how they're making a difference and inspiring you. So send us an email, earth at cbc.ca, and tell us all about the climate hero in your community. Next, we're heading to a place that's pretty near to my heart. My grandmother once told me, you know, and she, she didn't even speak English. She told me in Nehawan that when you come to these places, you just sit there and you offer your tobacco and you just listen. I'm standing next to artist Kevin Wessequate on a frozen field. And by the way, Nehawan means Cree. Kevin's feet are firmly planted in a thick layer of snow here at the Northeast Swale. It's a field of grasslands mixed with wetlands on the edge of Saskatoon. Our cheeks are pretty rosy from the wind. There are not any trees to help ease the gusts. The sky beams blue. And even though it's frigid, you can feel the warmth of the sun. Beneath us, a rich prairie ecosystem. When the snow melts, varieties of grasses and flowers will start to emerge. There will be leopard frogs, sharp-tailed grouse, beaver, and deer. But there's also carbon, lots of it. This unique prairie landscape can absorb carbon, 
And so right beneath our feet is a climate change solution. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, Kevin tells us how this land remains important to Nehewak people. It's almost like I'm stepping into a bit of a time machine when I take a walk out into the swale and I look at all of the beautiful, you know, this ecological site that, you know, maybe my ancestors had harvested, you know, good medicines from the land like sweetgrass or even berries. Um, you know, when I venture further out, I see more and more rocks. And this land is so unique, you know, in regards to the amount of life that it, it brings to our community. But a threat to this area looms. Kevin's eyes turn to a row of houses that touch the horizon in the distance. This is the current edge of Saskatoon. People worry it will creep closer to the swale. We really have to come together to, you know, protect these sites because, you know, in the future, our children will come out here and our children want to be able to reflect on the, you know, this place just like I do. And like if we just look to, you know, the south from where we're standing, like the city is coming closer and closer. It seems like almost every day, you know, these communities pop up. This patch of grassland inside city limits looks large. The landscape stretches as far as the eye can see. A small, committed group of people, including Kevin, is working to make sure this area is preserved and the persistence is paying off. The city of Saskatoon has just extended the northeast swale boundary to better protect species at risk. Okay, what is what is that? Um, probably jackrabbit. Yep. Bounding along. It's another cold, windy day on the prairies, and this time I'm with Candace Savage at a different corner of the swale. Her eyes turn from the jackrabbit to the fescue grasses. Through the drifts over there, there are areas of really good quality uh, fescue prairie with, you know, they're very rare grasses now, these these little fescues. Um, And there's knolls up there with all kinds of crocuses and wild roses and rare plants like crowfoot violets. Candace is another defender of this piece of grasslands. She and Kevin are part of a group called the Swale Watchers, and she's written many books about the landscape, the species, and the people who live here. Candace says the story of this swale is a great example of the determination by many right now to preserve grasslands, because grasslands are an important tool in our fight against climate change. But that's the amazing thing about grasslands. Um, some people have likened them to upside-down tropical forests. Um, we all know that the, the forests of the Amazon, for example, and forests in general, are really important um, for the way they hold carbon. But grasslands, prairies, are amazing for their ability because they put it in the ground. So the plants themselves, the above-ground um, Parts of the plants aren't perhaps very impressive to some eyes, but they have such deep roots and they put all their energy into those roots. And that material stores carbon. So um, grasslands as a whole are, they're like this storage reservoir that's half full. 
And so they're a remarkable resource for us. If we restore, if we protect the surviving fragments of natural grassland, and if we restore grasslands, put more land back into permanent culture, especially with a diversity of species, then we can store carbon um, underground. That's, yeah, that's the promise of grasslands. How threatened, though, are grasslands? Well, in, around Saskatoon, in this part of Saskatchewan, 95% of the natural grasslands have been destroyed. So they've been converted to subdivisions, or more often they've been converted to cropland, which doesn't function the same way. Obviously, they don't have the same kind of root structure storing carbon. Um, across the province, 80% of grasslands have been destroyed, so here here we have less than 5% in the province as a whole, less than 20%. Across the whole Great Plains, the destruction of grasslands goes on. Uh, we know there was the big plowdown of the settlement era, but it, what we don't realize is that these losses are continuing and incremental. How significant, then, is it in your mind to have a win like this in the city, to have a small yeah. area that will yeah. be protected? Well, it's not an insignificant area. We're, we have two fragments of natural grassland that will now be protected, we hope, forever. Protected, managed, restored. They must, of course, be reconnected. Um, they. They total about 1,100 acres or about 460 hectares. So, you know, balanced against the losses, that's not enormous, but it's not nothing. It's very significant and it's very important um, in this place where we have so little grassland left. And it's also really important because it's in a city. So we are urbanizing, right? The whole planet, more and more humans are living in towns and cities. And for us to figure out how to protect places like this in an urban context, that's the challenge of the future. Where does your own love of grasslands come from? Well, I was born on the prairies, so I've lived in this, this habitat my whole life. Um, breathe the air, you know, been drinking the water all this time. Um, my mom grew up on a, a homesteaded farm, so she grew up on land that her father had been, had plowed up. Um, and she had, it was a very difficult childhood, but she had an abiding love for that place, which she shared with me and my sisters. So she was the one who taught me where to find the shooting stars and um, the helped me, you know, learn about the fuzz on the crocuses and pass that love on. The crocuses will hopefully be emerging soon. <laughs> it's freezing <laughs> as we stand here, today. but that's that's the first sign of spring on the prairies, right. right? And just across there, um, there are so many crocuses in those, those um, you know, they're, they're damaged, that area. Um, up there in that closest corner to us is quite damaged, but we walked through it last spring. There are so many crocuses out there. Can hardly wait. <laughs>
As we talk about the prairie and about grasslands, I immediately think of Grasslands National Park. And I'm wondering, you know, what stories and memories come to mind for you when you think of Grasslands National Park and the importance it plays? Well, it is a very amazing place, for sure. Um, you know, across, the, across North America as a whole, less than 1% of grasslands have been protected. And that is the only really large, significant area of protected grassland in this country. So it's very important for that reason. And just think of what they've been able to do there. Um, working, they began with land that had been ranched, right? So this wasn't, it's not as if over the last 100 years or 150 years, people thought, oh, we'll protect this as a park. No, there were people who, were, um, who had moved in there, settled there during the settlement era, who had valued that land for its ability to produce beef. So they had businesses, they were, you know, uh, had a way of life, they had a whole economy um, built around private ownership of those lands, but they managed the land so well and with so much love and respect that when Canadians, with the government of Canada, decided that we should have a grasslands park. That was that was the opportunity that was there. So it's we all owe such a huge debt to those ranching families. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Beginning in the 1980s, Parks Canada started buying ranches to eventually form Grasslands National Park. The park is a five-hour trip south from Saskatoon. It's much larger than the Northeast Swale, but the story of the park shares many common threads with the grasslands that edge Saskatoon. Grasslands National Park is a rare island of protection for an ecosystem on the brink. And ranchers continue to play a key role in the National Park's conservation efforts. So let's dig into that part of the story. Hello, I'm Miles Anderson. I farm and ranch south of Fairmount, Saskatchewan, and mainly just run cattle. Miles' 2,000-hectare ranch in Fairmount, Saskatchewan, is next door to the park. The ground is covered in snow, but under the surface, the soil is teeming with life, just like at the frozen swale. And like Candace, Miles is waiting for that life to emerge. The first flower is crocuses. They're kind of, I think the soil is about minus three or four. The ground might not even be thawed out completely and the crocuses will come and then they'll be, you'll have moss flocks and, you know, three flowered avon shoot stars, buffalo beans. there's, There's something going all the time. For generations, Miles' family ranched on the same land, 
For his entire life, he's watched the politics of the park unfold. It wasn't always harmonious. Well, I was pretty young when it, uh, in fact, I was, probably wasn't even born when they first talked about it in the 50s. But uh, when they started getting serious about it in the 70s, it was, didn't think it was a, a very good deal to uproot all the people that were trying to make a living there and, and uh, turn it into a park. And, Back then, Miles says the common consensus was that to protect the ecosystem at the proposed park, you needed to keep livestock far away. When grasslands first, when they first started, they they assumed that the ranchers were just out there to degrade the prairie and to turn it into something that was better for for cows and uh, horses and nothing else. And, And they didn't understand that what we were doing is we were trying to make it so it was a sustainable, the more resilient the plant community is, the better it is for our cattle. And they didn't understand what we were trying to do. And we didn't understand that they were actually trying to do the same thing that that we were actually doing. And it took that 15, 20 years for us to figure each other out. But Miles says the relationship between Parks Canada and ranchers changed. Over the years, Parks realized that grazing animals can actually help keep grassland ecosystems in check. There's various things that happen with the cows just, or it could be a bison or whatever, eating the grass off and then their feet doing what they do. And then, of course, with the bugs that follow them when they decompose the manure, providing food for the birds. And There's a whole bunch of birds that live out there, and they all require a little different structure in the habitat. And if we make it all the same by removing grazing from it all, well, then all the birds that require a shorter or a disturbed habitat will disappear, and the ones that uh, like the tall stuff will flourish. What we have to do is make it so it's not all the same, so that there's a place for everything to live. You heard Miles mention bison. Up until 200 years ago, wild bison were important grazers. They were a critical animal for First Nations, and they once numbered in the tens of millions across North America. Since then, their populations have been devastated. Now, there are programs aimed at restoring bison herds. One wild herd lives in the western portion of Grasslands National Park. But cows grazing can also support grasslands. And the proof is right on Miles' farm. Miles says more than 15 years after the park was created, populations of sage grouse, the largest grouse in North America, and an endangered species in Canada were crashing inside the park boundaries. They were really going down hard after the the park got the land. It seemed like it progressively got worse and they seen that, uh, I mean, the broods the, was the same on both sides of the fence, but yet the ones on our side of the fence survived and the ones on their side of the fence didn't. So the chicks were actually being hatched, but they weren't surviving. So they thought that uh, maybe some grazing in, in around where the sage grouse are still at would be a, a good thing. Miles says that discovery led to a relationship with Grasslands National Park. He lets some of his cattle graze inside the park boundaries. The grasslands get the biodiversity benefit. And more life on the land means more carbon sucked into the soil. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a wild licorice plant that has a uh, burr or whatever that sticks to your the red thing that sticks to your pants when you're walking through and they're really really annoying but anyway if you happen to dig one of them up they've got a root that's just a tiny little plant but they got a root that's about an inch and a half to two inches around and it's amazing and then and it, it'll go down like probably 15 20 feet that's all carbon stored every time a leaf goes up and sucks up a little sunshine it sends another root down too which puts the carbon back into the ground and that is the big thing that prairie has is just the sheer number of plants animals insects like you name it and what we have to do is we have to keep those stores of biodiversity in the game like we don't want to go so far as to say that we're so smart we can figure this out we'll take all these other things out because we might get rid of something that we really need it's kind of like the you know the straw and the camel deal but ranching like this isn't easy miles says grazing the land enough but not too much takes skill it also takes a lot of land which is getting more expensive in saskatchewan and across the prairie ranching tends to bring in a lot less profit than growing crops Today, Miles advocates for increased support for ranchers to steward the land they work on. Despite the challenges, Miles plans to keep ranching as he's always done. It's his livelihood, for one thing. But for Miles, there's so much more to grasslands than what first meets the eye. Well, here you can see for a long, long ways, and it looks like it's all the same. But then when you look down, you notice that, man, it's not all the same. And... One bird watcher friend of mine said, if you want to see lots of birds of the same kind, go to the forest. If you want to see lots of different kind of birds, go to the prairie. So there's your biodiversity thing. Miles is right. The grasslands are rich with so many different plants and animals. But that may not be noticeable at first which is why making the case to save grasslands can sometimes be difficult. Back in Saskatoon at the Frozen Swale, I ask Candace Savage if that subtlety can make it difficult to convince people of the importance of grasslands. A lot of people who have looked at the swales have, they just say, what's there? There's nothing there. That's wasteland, you know? So, yeah, it's not spectacular like a range of mountains. So, yes, it can be. I mean, that certainly is one huge um, obstacle to valuing these lands the way they deserve to be. What continues to threaten the grasslands? What's, what is the major threat right now? The major threat to grasslands continues to be what it has been for the last 100 or 150 years, and that's conversion to cropland. Increasingly, though, it's also going to be conversion to subdivisions. So, yeah, any loss, any loss of grasslands matters at this stage. And a, a prairie wetland or grassland that's lost to an urban subdivision is lost in exactly the same, to the exactly the same degree as if it had been lost um, to agriculture. 
So what lessons can we glean from the grasslands as we face some of these really big challenges we've talked about today, you know, including climate change? This grassland here, the grasslands in Saskatchewan, have been here, not exactly in this form, but very similar to this for 100,000 years maybe. Even before the glaciation, there were Richardson ground squirrels, gophers, running around in this place. So I think the prairies invite us. They're places with wide open spaces, right? They have broad horizons. And they invite us to think over long time spans. They remind us that the choices that we make today are going to have impacts over decades and generations and hundreds of thousands of years. And they're patient places. So the prairie is, is it's still here. It still has the potential to hold carbon and to help us protect the future. Candace, thank you so much for talking to me on this very cold, <laughs> windy, very typical prairie day. <laughs> <laughs> very prairie. <laughs> It was a very typical prairie day. It was so cold and I can't wait for the snow to melt and to be like Candace and head out into the field with my family to take some pictures of crocuses. That's a favorite spring activity of mine. And hopefully we're only a few weeks away from that. We've been talking about carbon stored underground in grasslands, but for our next story, we're shifting gears a bit because buried under the ground are billions of tons of potential fossil fuel emissions. Projects so big, environmentalists call them carbon bombs. The Blueberry River First Nations in northeastern BC is sitting on top of the biggest one in Canada, a gas reserve called the Montney. There are tens of thousands of wells already in the ground around their territory, and energy companies have planned many more. Collectively, they are enough to obliterate Canada's emissions targets many times over. But a precedent-setting court win and agreement with the province gives this small First Nation the power to determine how, or even if, more development happens. CBC investigative reporter Tara Carmen traveled to the Blueberry River First Nations to find out how they envision the future. Hi, Tara. Hello, Alicia. So what is life like for the Blueberry River First Nations people who are living on top of this massive oil and gas field? Alicia, that's exactly what I traveled up to northern BC to find out. And it is beautiful country, very cold when we were there, pushing minus 30, but you're in Saskatchewan. (laughs) I'm familiar with that. (laughs) I do not need to talk to you about cold, but to this... uh, Vancouverite. It felt very cold indeed. Um, So there were vast frozen fields, really big skies, beautiful sunsets, sunrises, and creeks and rivers crisscrossing the territory. Every now and then you see a moose or some horses by the side of the road. And this is a community that has seen its way of life destroyed because of resource extraction. And I'm not overstating that. That was in a BC Supreme Court ruling that you mentioned off the top there. Mm. And they even had to move their whole community in the late 70s because of a leak of highly toxic sour gas. 
So we took a drive with Blueberry River First Nations counselor Wayne Yahe and Elder Jerry Davis along Davis's trap line. You ladies picked the coldest day of the year. Sure yep. So Wayne and Jerry pointed out to us the places they used to have cabins where they used to pick blueberries and Saskatoon berries. This makes me think of my own family cabin, really? Tara. Yeah, where we would we would go and pick Saskatoon berries, and then my grandmother would take them back to the cabin to make pies. So you just evoked a really wonderful memory for me there. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, um, and they used to do that too. And they could live off the land for weeks at a time. They used to be able to drink the water from the creeks and the rivers. And that was really key because it's it's when you're going back into the bush for weeks at a time, it's really difficult to have to pack in your water. And here's how Councillor Yahe describes what he saw out that truck window when we were driving along. And every few hundred meters, there were clear cuts, well pads, fences, private property signs. Everywhere you look as we drive, there's a road that turns off. It's a logging road. So it's kind of... Uh, it's a very high level of, of uh, disturbance within this, this, this core area, a small area. But, you know, over the years, there's logging. Now there's uh, oil and gas. Oil and gas was always here, but at the turn of the 90s, that's when it just ramped up. And the elder we were with, Jerry Davis, he says he can no longer get to about three quarters of his trap line because of all of this industrial disturbance. So we got out of the car and we we're standing near an intersection on part of his trap line and logging trucks and oil and gas tankers were just whizzing by. And all of this traffic is one reason most of the animals that used to live there, like moose that they depended on for food and for furs, have moved on. And Davis blames the industry and the government that oversees it. They destroy our trap lands. They polluted the whole country. There's no berries. Now, today, you can't do anything in this country. Like I don't know how they explain it. I don't know how to explain. Long ago was our happy days. Long ago, you go out, you jump on a horse, you come back with a meal. <laughs> but not, not today. Do you think those happy days can never come back? I don't think so. All the happiness will never come back. Wow. That is stark, you know, especially hearing him talking about there being no berries while listening to those horns in the background, too. Yeah, it's very sad. I can tell you, Leisha, that there's a big sense of loss here and, and a lot of grief. Yeah, I could hear that. And then we know that there are thousands more gas wells planned for this area. This is where that whole concept of carbon bombs comes in. So why don't we zoom out for just a moment to better understand exactly what a carbon bomb is? Sure. So the concept here, Leisha, is actually quite simple. A carbon bomb is basically any fossil fuel project with more than a billion tons of CO2 equivalent emissions still buried in the ground. And researchers writing in the journal Energy Policy last year identified more than 400 of them around the world. 12 of them are in Canada. 
Now, Kiel Kuna is the lead author of that article and the director of the Leave It in the Ground initiative. And here's why he says it's important for us to know where these carbon bombs are. Because there are many people now in the world who are very concerned about the climate emergency and wondering what should be done about it or what they could do about it. So focusing on these carbon bombs allows you to focus on the places where the climate emergency is created and figuring out ways to slow it down. So he used an analogy, Lisha, that I thought was really interesting and really kind of explains this concept for people who might not understand it. So if you think of fossil fuel emissions like water coming out of a tap, Trying to control the emissions is like plugging the leaks, but shutting down carbon bombs is like turning off the tap. Huh. Okay. And then the Blueberry River for stations is sitting right on top of Canada's biggest one. So exactly just how big are we talking about here? So Canada's biggest carbon bomb is called the Montney Play, and it's a football-shaped piece of land, 130,000 square kilometres, straddling the BC-Alberta border. And the Blueberry River First Nations, as you said, sits right in the middle of it. And there's enough gas under the ground there to last Canada for 140 years. So obviously a lot of interest from industry in taking this gas out. Yeah, I can believe that. I actually used to work in northern BC, and so I know oil and gas brings a lot of jobs and money to that region. And it's, you know, a similar story here in Saskatchewan. There are places like that here, you know, where I live now, and resource extraction can be a huge economic opportunity for communities if it's done properly. Right. So you'll know, Lisha, from having worked in this part of the province that, um, Oil and gas is a huge driver of the economy in this area and in Fort St. John. It's built on oil and gas. So we went to talk to Peace River North MLA Dan Davies, who's with the opposition BC Liberal Party at his office in Fort St. John. And he pointed out to us that it was pushing minus 30 outside and natural gas was what was keeping all of those homes warm. And he also said that from a global perspective, exporting this oil and gas overseas represents a climate win. The globe is in this climate crisis right now. So how do we then make an impact? And that impact is us providing India, us providing China, us providing Europe with the alternate means of the natural gas as opposed to them using coal. So do we need to continue to invest in the oil and gas industry? I think we do until we get that timeline sorted out, what does that look like down the road? And and if I were to say, I, I would say we're 100 years away from being off fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, the experts say we got a decade to shut this thing down. Do you recognize that there's a certain urgency here in terms of the timeline? A- absolutely, there's urgency. Um, to say stop in 10 years, that's unrealistic. That, that is really unrealistic. Uh, we're not there. I mean, it, 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 we we are not there as a country. We're not there as a society. It's quite a difference between 10 and 100. I mean, 100 years from being off fossil fuels, that seems like a stark contrast to what climate advocates are calling for. Yeah, you're right. There is a big difference there. And that's exactly the kind of statement that leads activists like Kuna to criticize the Canadian government and energy industry for continuing to invest in fossil fuel projects with these long timelines. They take billions of investments and they take decades 
to generate uh, profit. So you are basically betting on humanity continuing to burn down the house at the same rate in order for you to make money. And that is a very risky bet. I would say it's not a very smart bet. And Kuna also pointed out that most of this gas has to be fracked. And that's a process that releases huge amounts of methane, a particularly potent greenhouse gas. And research published in the Journal of Geoscience and Environment Protection also linked fracking to hundreds of earthquakes in this region, which experts say are only going to get more frequent and stronger with more fracking. So it really sounds like Blueberry River First Nations is caught in the middle here. You've got industry and politicians wanting to extract more gas and then also environmentalists wanting to leave it in the ground. What, what did you hear from, from people in Blueberry River First Nations? Yeah, that's a great question. And what I heard from them is that they have their own priorities, which are mainly about healing their land from all of the damage that's already been done and trying to reclaim some of those happy days when the land was bountiful and the berries grew that Elder Jerry Davis talked about earlier. And they've got some help in doing that now. So in 2021, Blueberry River won a lawsuit against the province. So a judge ruled that all of this industrial disturbance we've been hearing about earlier breached their treaty rights. And that judge ordered the province to come to an agreement that gave Blueberry River a meaningful say in how their land is used. So they announced that agreement just in January, and it includes a $200 million land restoration fund. And that's what's really important to this community. Mae White is the restoration manager for the Blueberry River First Nations. So this plant here is in the Melolotus family. Common name is... So she showed me some of the plants growing on a hill overlooking the frozen Blueberry River, which is full of sediment from all of the unpaved roads created by the logging and oil and gas industries. I've heard from community members that they were able to swim in Blueberry River and drink from Blueberry River. That is not a current practice. And in 2017, the Blueberry River ran dry for the first time in recorded memory. So we're actively working at subwatershed and watershed scales to restore water quality. Sounds like a huge project, but they now have money to do these restoration projects. But what exactly does this agreement with the province mean for oil and gas specifically? That's a great question, Leisha, and a lot of that is still being worked out. Um, What I can say about this is that in the past, this First Nation has been just inundated with consultation requests from oil and gas companies wanting to drill wells here and there. And the BC Energy Regulator, which authorizes these permits, has only ever turned down three applications in its 25-year history. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But Blueberry River First Nations Chief Judy Desjardins was clear that things are going to be different moving forward. So now we're at a place where we are in the driver's seat upon all the activity within the area. And we can still restore our cultural and traditional values, what it means now. That's what it means now. And while working with industry, the government, and find that balance so that we can move forward You know, right now, it's not business as usual. We're no longer that checkbox. If an application comes and you don't like it, can you say no, no? Um, After thorough, I guess, going through it thoroughly 
and reviewing the process, where it's at, which claim area it's in, if it's, uh, what, what's the risk to the footprint that it's going to leave? Yes, we do have. So to be clear, Alicia, gas will continue to come out of the ground here. But Chief Desjardins says it won't happen if it's not sustainable for her community. It has to benefit the community and respect their restoration goals. Our elders are suffering. We couldn't live off the land. But here we have everybody, including the, including the province, getting all this gas and we're being overlooked. So, you know, right now it's, 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 times are changing. And, you know, I, I look at the living conditions of my people. I've been here a year. I've heard their stories. I've seen their struggles over the years. And we're at a place now where it can get better. And Councillor Wayne Yahe shares that hope. I know for a fact that we'll be involved in every step of that permanent process, whatever that might look like, but we have a say. So that's the big difference. We're going to be involved. So in light of that, it gives me hope for the future of my unborn grandchildren. Grandchildren. You can really hear that focus on the next generation of Blueberry River First Nations. Yes, that's very much where their mindset is. And back on the trap line, Elder Jerry Davis is thinking seven generations into the future. He's thinking about those who will still be here on this vast, snowy land long after the resource industry is gone. they got to have a final way to make a living. If this gas will all went dry, but them they got to have a, a way to make their living. That's why we, we elders have to sit down with our young, younger kids to tell them that you have to find a way. So he wants them to be able to live off the land as he did, and for the land to be healed to a point where it's able to support them. And where they can go berry picking again. Tara, thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me, Alicia. Next week on the show, we're taking you to Porto Basque, Newfoundland and Labrador. It's been nearly six months since post-tropical storm Fiona ripped through the area. And now the town is working on rebuilding not only homes, but rebuilding identity and culture too. Here's Patty Mundan and CBC producer Caroline Hillier walking over rock, debris and glass in Patty's old house that was destroyed by Fiona and soon will be demolished. The waves came in my living room windows here and came out through my front door. What do you feel right now when we're standing here looking out at that water? You can, oh, you'll never take the ocean away from me. But looking at, at this disaster right now is like, it's just a cold, harsh feeling right now. When this was all new in my mind, first when this happened, I came down here and I hated it. I hated it. So one day I went to Tim Hortons and I got a cup of coffee and I came back and I sat on the rock and I just looked at it and I, I said, okay, Patty, this is a tragedy that happened, but, you know, I have, to, I have to face it. We'll have more from Porto Basque next week. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Daniel Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, and Rohit Joseph. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. 
Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Lee Sugarbinski in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.